For our New Testament reading, I'd like to read from Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. As the word is preached, the Holy Spirit applies it to the heart, to the mind, to the soul. This enables a sinner to give a simple testimony of his or her faith in Christ, no matter how young or old a person is, no matter how long they've been a Christian or a believer, uh, they're enabled to do this. And it provides a way to self-test one about one's faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then our Old Testament reading, which is our text this morning, is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read the first seven verses to you. In the preceding chapters of 1 Samuel, the emphasis has been upon King Saul. He was an example of what a king should not be, demonstrating the need for God to choose the right man. But this man is unknown as we start the chapter. Of course, for most of you, you know what's coming. But I'd like you to try to pretend like this is the first time you've heard this passage and see how the writer of 1 Samuel builds this all up to, to an interesting climax uh, at the, later on in the uh, chapter. Let me read to you verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being the king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he, that's Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement 
looked at him. He was a gentleman, sold a crown, clean favored, and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still, he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning. And he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish we were in his place. So, on we worked, waited for the light, went without the meat, cursed the bread. Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Now, if you've never heard that poem by Edwin Arlington Robinson, that end came as quite a shock. It's unexpected. Here's a man that had everything, and yet deep within his heart, he had all kinds of problems. Even today, we hear terrible tragedies occurring, terrible killings and murders. And quite often, this is a response to people who knew this person. He was such a nice man. He was such a good boy. I can't believe my good neighbor would have done that. So I would ask you to be thinking about this this morning. What do you see when you look at people, when you consider events and things going on in our world today? Our basic text really is at the end of verse 7, where we read, The Lord looks on the heart. He does not see as man sees him. He looks on the outward appearance. It's that thought I want you to be thinking about this morning. The chapter begins with the Lord coming and confronting Samuel and saying, how long are you going to agree with King, over King Saul? And earlier we find that Samuel was very upset that Samuel was going to be deposed as king. Had a hard time getting over it. The Lord said, come on, you need to get on with, with life here. I have a new responsibility for you. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to fill your horn with oil. That would be a container of olive oil of some sort. I'm going to send you to Jesse in Bethlehem. And here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you anoint one of his sons as the next king, because I've chosen that man from one of Jesse's sons. Now, first, Samuel had a problem. He said, well, how, how can I go do that? If King Saul finds I'm going to anoint a new king, he'll, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, don't worry about it. Take a heifer, go there to do a sacrifice and a feast, and I'll take it from there. And so we read that Samuel indeed did that. He obeyed, and he alleviated the fears of those in Bethlehem who, you know, when sometimes when a prophet showed up, they weren't sure, this guy is going to uh, pronounce a curse on us, or what's he going to do? But Samuel said, no, I, I came in peace. You don't have to worry. We're going to have the sacrifice. We're going to have a nice meal together. I'm glad to be here. Now, as he's doing this, Jesse has seven of his sons who are there, and Samuel is undoubtedly looking around, and I can imagine him wondering, which one of these is going to be? And suddenly, here was Eliab, 
probably the oldest son, a man of pretty good height. And right away, what does Samuel do? Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. This is the guy. He looks like a king, just like Saul did. Our society is very taken up with outward appearances, aren't they? How people, how, high, how much they weigh, how, how they look facially, how tall they are, whatever it might be. We are attracted to certain kinds of people. But the Lord said to Samuel, revealed to him in some way, he said, Samuel, I, that's, he's not the one. I've rejected him. Before we go on in this text, let's remind ourselves that our society today is very conscious of outward appearance. Look at the TV ads. They appeal to that with cosmetics, clothes, home furnishings, cars, one's physical appearance. What we see largely determines what we think about things and people. In that poem I read for you, the people of that day, they thought Richard Corey had everything. He, everything was going fine for him. But they only saw the outward appearance. That was inside his heart. And so the Lord told Samuel, beginning of verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. In other words, as you're evaluating these sons of Jesse, don't approach it that way, Samuel. Because I've rejected Eliab. Remember, the Lord sees not as you see. Well, you see, Samuel was making the same mistake as the people of Israel did regarding King Saul. Earlier in the, in the eighth chapter, we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel tried to say, look, if you have a king, you're going to have some problems with him. He's going to tax you. He's going to do this and that. You're not going to like it. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. We want them to look at us and see how, what a wonderful king we have. And it turned out in chapter 9, we read about Saul, a handsome young man. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Indeed he was. As we apply this to believers today, we face the dangers of, first of all, the, uh, being coming overly proud of how we look. Now, it's only natural that we get up in the morning and we get dressed and so on, we go to the mirror, make sure the hair's okay and everything's fine and we shaved or whatever it is, and we put the clothes on and look, okay, why do we do that? Well, we want to, first of all, fit into society around us, but also we want to make a good appearance to people. We want to have them think highly of us, how we look outwardly. The problem is that we become very overconfident in just that, and we forget that we need to be humble in the sight of the Lord and not proud. If there are any unbelievers here this morning, one of the problems you have with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it starts out saying you're a sinner. You're under the judgment of God. You displeased Him. His wrath already is against you. You face eternal hell. And people have a hard, hard time with that. 
hard time. You say, you mean this nice neighbor down the street? She is, she's not a Christian. She's another religion and so on. You say, you mean she's going to hell? I, I, can't, I can't accept that. As they look at how good people seem to be. Most Jews in Jesus' day saw only his outward appearance. One of the reasons they rejected him as Messiah. Hear this prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 52 and 53. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Dr. E.J. Young, writing on this, this section of God's Word, said, The servant who would become Jesus, this is a picture of Christ to come, the servant has neither form nor glory. Those things that in the eyes of many are requisite for leadership were not found in him. Our judgment is according to the outward appearances, not just and true. Behind the Christ's physical form, the eye of faith should have seen the true glory, but looking upon his outward appearance, Israel found nothing of beauty to delight its eye. Now, I don't know about you, but I have certain trouble with paintings or portraits of Jesus. Most of them paint him with very pure skin, beautiful hair, the nice-looking guy. We forget that especially in the three years of his public ministry, as the weight of sin came upon him, as he became identified with the sins of his people, began to change his countenance, his face. You know what it's like. You've seen somebody and you say, say boy, he, he's got a lot on his mind. You see those wrinkles and, and uh, drooping eyelids and whatever it might be. He's being bothered by something. We know this is going to make people look very terrible. We need to think of Jesus that way as he approached the cross. By that time, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, because people only were looking at the outward appearance. We can see many people in the crowd of that day as he went to Calvary thinking to himself, oh my goodness, that poor man. I remember uh, I heard him preach and teach a while back, and but look at him now, my goodness, what's, what's this all about? This, this is the promised Messiah, the Christ? He says he is, but it's kind of hard to believe that when I look at him. What about the inward heart? We looked at the outward appearance aspect. I think, what about the inward heart? The Lord looks on the heart, the, the seat, the center of human character, your basic personality, whom you really are, not outwardly, although that might express something of what you should, should express what you are inwardly. But the Lord looks deeper. First Chronicles 28.9, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thoughts. Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, Forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, for you know you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Jesus to the temple crowd. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And Jesus to the Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What a man looks at or sees is not what the Lord sees. He looks much deeper. Even the notorious Prince Machiavelli understood the base principle, at least the human part of it. He said, men in general judge more from appearances than from reality. 
Now, Samuel was certainly willing to submit to God's revelation to himself that Eliab was not the one. And so I like to imagine it kind of went like this as we read on verse 8 and following, that um, Abinadab was the next son that came before Samuel. And the Lord said, no, not him. Never there's Shema. And the Lord said, no, not him. And then four other of Jesse's sons came before Samuel. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. And I like to think of Samuel scratching his head and thinking to yourself, I don't get it. The Lord sent me here to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And I look at all seven of these guys. And the Lord says no to all of them. And then Samuel had an idea. He thought, I'm going to ask Jesse another, a question. Jesse, are all of your sons here? And perhaps Jesse at first said, well, yeah, you know, here they are. And he said, well, well, there's the youngest one, a word that could also mean the smallest one. But he's out taking care of the sheep. I didn't think about him. And right away, Samuel said, go bring him here. In fact, we're not going to eat, eat anything until he's here. And so in verse 12, he sent and brought him in. You wonder what his brothers thought, his older brothers, <laughs> this, what? I mean, we're hungry here. We want to sit down and eat. We got to wait for this shepherd boy to come and meet with us here. This doesn't make sense. You wonder what Jesse even thought about it. But nevertheless, Samuel said, no, we're not going to eat till he comes. And so in verse 12, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means he was reddish. He had fair skin. Most in that day would have darker skin. So David kind of stood out that way. He had beautiful eyes, attractive eyes, uh, animated eyes. And he was handsome. Same word used of Saul back in chapter 9. He's handsome. So he was a good-looking boy. And here he comes in before his father and the prophet Samuel and his older brothers. And the Lord said what? Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is my choice. He's the one. Anoint him. Now anointing meant that you would take the oil and the horn and then pour it on top of the head. It was used to anoint priests and kings and prophets. In this case, to set apart this young boy as the next king of Israel. This boy, of course, is a type of the Messiah Christ. The word Messiah, the word Christ, means the anointed one, the one set apart for a special task. Now this far, and I think I've done it, I haven't mentioned the name of this young boy. And if you didn't come to verse 13, you'd still be wondering, who is, who is this boy? And of course, verse 13 reveals that to us. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. 
from that day forward. And look at the last phrase in verse 13. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This was the last uh, primary public thing that Samuel did uh, in setting apart David and anointing him as the next king. He was anointed as king even before there was any kingship to, to be over. He didn't have the kingship at all, but he was anointed to be prepared for that. So let me ask some questions. Question number one, what was different about David? David grew up in the same family as his older brothers, had the same kind of training. Well, he had certain kind of spiritual qualities that the Lord himself had placed in David's heart, such things as faith, humility, courage, obedience, submission to authority. All pictures, of course, of the Christ who is to come, who had all these things without sin. Second question, then, is why was his heart so different? And I alluded to that, the fact that the Lord had worked in David's heart and given him the gift of faith and given him these spiritual abilities to reach out and trust in the Christ to come by faith. Because God had chosen him by his sovereign good pleasure to be the next king. He passed over Abinadab and Eliab and Shammah and the other boys because his heart, his, his mind was set upon David to be the next king. In Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72, the Lord chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. And with upright heart, he, David, shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Daniel Doriani wrote, The king who would deliver Israel needed a right heart, not just the right height. How true that was. A third question here. How much did Jesse and David understand what was going on? We just don't know. Samuel probably understood better than Jesse did. But why, why is the Lord doing it this way? What, what's this all about? It would be much later before David would become the actual king of Israel. Out of the thousands of Abraham's descendants, David would be the one particularly set apart this time in history to be the one preparing for God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ to come. So what are some lessons we can take from this passage of Scripture, and particularly the end of verse 7? Uh, there are several things having to do with our lives in general. Certainly, one thing is we must be careful in judging others of mere outward appearances, of saying, well, that person seems like a pretty good, that seems like a Christian. He's doing Christian things. We have to be careful we don't make those kinds of judgments. Someone has written, all man's effort at self-betterment has been devoted to polishing the outside of the apple. He knows no cure for the worm that eats at the core of life, so he ignores its presence. And then it also reminds us we need to be careful how we treat other people. Just because they don't look like we would like them to look, just although when we first see them that we, we cringe, 
we have a tendency to fall back or to bypass them, not pay attention to them. We have to be careful we don't do that kind of thing. Remember, each person is made in the image of God and reflects some of that, even in, no matter how much they look. Don't become too discouraged with national world events. We, we look at the headlines. There they are. We see things on television. You know, oh, look what's going on in our world. This is terrible. How are things going to happen? This is horrible. We're only looking at the outward appearance. We're forgetting that God is a sovereign God who is working behind the scenes. He has his purposes in ministering to the nations of the world as well as individuals. And then we need to always have a high view of the church. How easy it is to look at what's happening in certain churches and other churches, including this church here, and say, well, boy, look, look what's going on here. Has God left us? Wonderful things are going on no matter how small the church or how large the church. Not just in the United States, but throughout the world where God has his servants faithfully serving him. There's much more to reality, we are reminded by this text, of the unseen spiritual reality of the soul. That's what the Lord particularly focuses on. Our soul, your heart, your mind, who you really are, not how you look outwardly. And that's where the Bible uh, can be such help so helpful provides the proper balance between the outward and the inward between the material and the spiritual it alerts us to what's inside not just what's outside but despite these kind of lessons and applications we can draw from this above all we need to remember that our text is just not about certain moral lessons although helpful whenever we come across david in the old testament as well as in the gospel accounts, we need to automatically think David, Jesus Christ, the son of David. David, a type of Jesus Christ. And while David had many flaws, there was something about him that would picture the way the Christ, the king, would be and rule in the lives of his people. S.G. DeGraff has written, When the Lord chose David, he intended to save his people through him. David would be a fuller and better type of the Christ than Saul had been. He would be a kingship which the Lord would use to bless his people. The people, in their unbelief, had not desired such a kingship, but the Lord would give it to them anyway as a blessing. Likewise, we have been given the true king, Jesus Christ. We read about him in the pages of Scripture. By his spirit, he ministers to our hearts and to our lives. So the real question is not, what do you see in Jesus? What does he see in you? I close with these quotations from the Old Testament. The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As you look inside your own heart, and I can't look there, 
but the Lord can. What do you see? Join me in prayer. Father, it is our prayer that you indeed would minister to our hearts, that you would reach into the very deepest part of who we are, confront us with our sins, but at the same time, show us Jesus, show us his perfections, his glory, remind us of his great work on our behalf that he gave himself for sinners like us, that we might have eternal life. In his name we pray, amen.